uh, excellence for the next month. And you might say, oh, excellence. <sighs> that doesn't sound very spiritual. Doesn't sound very spiritual. Daniel chapter six, verse three, it says, then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because what? An excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. The king set Daniel over the whole realm because an average spirit rested on him. No? Because an excellent spirit rested on him. Because he did things with excellence. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, everything in your life has to be polished brass and marble and pearl and, you know, fine linens. I'm saying that you have to be committed to a life of giving the best with what you have. No matter where you're at, you give it your best. That's what we're talking about here. And, and when we're talking about excellence, we're not talking about something that is man-made. We're something that, as the scripture says, is, is one of the inerrant qualities of the kingdom of God. How many believe that God's kingdom is a kingdom of excellence? Amen. How many believe that there's nothing average about, the, about glory? Nothing average about his kingdom? Nothing average about that which he has redeemed us for? Amen? And yet so many times we're guilty of treating our relationship with him average. He gets most, you know, if we're perfectly honest, we give God our leftover time. We give God our leftover energy. We give God leftovers. And how many know there's nothing worse than a whole week eating leftovers? I mean, I'm all for using up my leftovers, you know. <sighs> but my wife is having a difficult time learning to cook for two. It's a strategy, I know, and she came from a big family, and then we've always had lots of people living with us. We've had people living with us almost the entire time we've been in this house. And now during COVID, there's just two of us, right? And, and she's having to learn to cook for two, not very successfully. So it means that I eat a lot of leftovers, and I sit down and go, oh, leftovers again. And it made me think the other day how frustrating it must be for God when all he gets is our leftovers. And he's willing to take them because he loves us, because he craves time with us. He'll take the leftovers, but he wants so much more. He wants our first fruits. He wants our first efforts. He wants our excellent time. He doesn't want the time when you're so dead tired that you can barely keep your eyes open. Now I'll pray. Oh, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, you know, leftovers. No, he wants you to spring out of bed in the morning and spend time with him and say, God, I just, I'm so eager to start my day with you. What have you got for me today? How exciting for him to know that the first thing that's on our mind when we begin our day is to start with him. God doesn't want leftovers. And if you remember nothing else from this series and you remember God doesn't want your leftovers, man, it's been good. It's been good. Because an excellent life, an excellent spirit on the church of Jesus Christ is a church that doesn't give God leftovers but gives him the first of all things. Our first fruits, our first uh, financial uh, gifts. You know, uh, God gets the top, the tenth that comes right off the top. He gets the first of everything and he gets it from us because it's our best. It's our first. Amen? It's all for free this morning. You know, and when we commit to that life of excellence, it may just be that that 
excellent spirit in us is what separates us from others in our community. It's the spirit of excellence resting on the church that separates it from the rest of the community. And so this morning, we're going to spend a month talking about excellence. And you know, and I got to be honest with you, when we've set this as one of our values uh, over a decade ago, I almost didn't put it in because I thought, I don't really think that's one of our values. I don't think we as a church value excellence enough. You know, I'm just being honest with you. But then we put it in because we thought, well, the kingdom's a kingdom of excellence, and it's something we can aspire to even if we're not there yet, right? And I think over the last decade, we've done a much better job. When we've done renovations here at the church, we've done them with an excellent spirit. We've done things, I mean, if you don't think so, just go look at our new kitchen. We've done it with excellence. We're going to serve people here. We're going to do it with excellence. Everything we're doing, we're trying to do it with excellence. And, you know, we, we have X number of dollars at our disposal. We're going to do it with that, and we're going we're to do it with excellence. And we're going to do it without going in debt. And we're going to do it with a kingdom mindset. Amen? And so when it came to streaming and going online, I said, we're not going to just stick a camera up in front of the pastor and have him preach. We're going to do it with excellence. And some weeks it's a big headache because you've got seven cameras going and you've got all kinds of stuff going, but we're doing it with excellence. Someone say amen. Because there's a spirit that's got to be released in us that we do things with excellence. Now, when I talk about excellence, first point I want to make this morning is I'm not talking about perfection. And, uh, and I found this interesting note, and, and it says, is your church looking for the perfect pastor? It said, is your church looking for the perfect pastor? And, and it was a chain letter, and I read this. I said, this is something. i got to check this out. It said, if you're not satisfied with your pastor, either me or Mark or Barry or Mark or, or you know, somebody uh, you know, here at staff at Desert Stream, then here's a new solution on the horizon that might just work for you. The result of a computerized survey indicate the perfect pastor preaches exactly 15 minutes. He condemns sin but never upsets anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is always also the church janitor. Well, during COVID, that's been true. We have been. Uh, he makes $50 a week, wears good clothes, buys good books, drives a good car, and gives about $50 a week to the poor. He's 28 years old and has preached for 30 years. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends all of his time with senior citizens. The perfect minister smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He makes 15 calls daily on congregation families, shut-ins, and the hospitalized, and is always in his office when needed. Now, if your minister does not measure up to this standard, simply send this letter to six other churches that are tired of their minister, too. Then bundle up your minister and send him to the church on the top of the list. In one week, you'll receive 1,643 ministers, and one of them will be perfect. Have faith in this procedure. One church broke the chain and got its old minister back in less than three weeks. So don't break the chain. Hallelujah. <laughs> you know, excellence is not perfection. And a lot of people mistake the two. They think that unless the pastor's perfect, we're not doing it with excellence. Unless our kids' program is perfect, we're not doing it with excellence. Unless, unless the building is perfect, it's not being done with excellence. No, that's not what excellence is. Excellence is doing uh, as the very best that you can with what you have, right? It is doing everything that you can with what God has given to you. God does not get into this, this thing of comparing you to other people, other ministers, other, 
uh, situations. No, no. He measures you against your potential in your situation in your season with your anointing, with your relationship with him. That's what God judges. Amen? And God is looking for excellence from us in that situation, not perfection. Excellence is to do a good, uh, do a common thing in an uncommon way, said Booker T. Washington. The quality of a person's life is in direct proportion to their commitment to excellence regardless of their chosen field of endeavor. Helen Keller said, I long to accomplish a great and noble task, but it's my chief duty to accomplish small tasks as if they were great and noble. You see, the spirit of excellence is taking whatever task is put in front of me and doing it with everything that I can. Putting your your heart and your soul and your mind and spirit into what the Lord has put before you. Excellence is not perfection, but it is the process of being perfected. Amen? Amen? The Bible does say to be perfect, but if you look at the tense of that word, it's talking about be in the process of being perfected. It means that you're supposed to be in a process with God where he's making you better every day, where God is working on us every single day. He's making something better out of me today than I was yesterday. I'm not the man I was 20 years ago, and in 20 years, I don't hope to be the man that I still am today. Progress. Amen? And process. One of the things I love about CR, and I tell people this all the time, is that unlike AA, in CR, it's about progress and process. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is about process, that everybody's in process, and that's why they go in and they, hi, I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic, even though they haven't had a drink for 35 years. It's a confession that, that limits, it puts a ceiling on your experience. But in Celebrate Recovery, it says, hi, my name is, you know, Kevin, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who's been, you know, set free from, right, progress, and is working on process. Do you see what I'm saying? So that we celebrate where God has taken us, but we also acknowledge that we're always still in process. God's always working on something. And God doesn't want us to remain stagnant. He wants to work on us so that that which was in the past is dealt with, but that which is yet to come is being worked on. Amen? Praise the Lord. All right. Let me just get right into it then. I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians, chapter 2. And the title of today's message is Excellence in Attitude. Excellence in Attitude. And we're going to start this whole series off by looking at the attitude of Christ. The attitude of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to start at verse 5. And listen carefully to what Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. He said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you uh, to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run of labor, or labor, I should say, for nothing. Verses 5 to 16. But it starts right off with that statement. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. If you want to have excellence in attitude, I think if you have the same attitude as Jesus, that's going to get you there. I think you're going to do all right. I think you'll be all right. If you say, I'm going to have the same attitude as Jesus, I think you're going to be okay. I think you're going to be good. When we're talking about an attitude of Christ, I think if anybody could be said to have an excellent attitude, it's Jesus, right? If there is a spirit of excellence resting on anyone, it's Jesus, the person who is sinless, the person who walked in purpose and fulfillment of destiny, Jesus had an excellent attitude. And this passage of Scripture describing the attitude of Jesus commands us to be like-minded, to think like Jesus, to have an attitude like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to live like Jesus. First John chapter 2, verse 6 says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So in other words, he's anticipating that this attitude of Jesus would operate in our lives. That if we claim to be his disciple, then we need to allow the attitude of Christ to permeate our being, and we need to share his attitude as well. And there are four things about his attitude I want to look at here that's brought out in this passage. And, uh, and I want to talk about the attitude of Christ Jesus in Scripture, all right? And what are the four things that his attitude is exemplified of in Scripture? Amen? Well, first one is that Jesus had an attitude of love. I mean, that's undeniable. The Bible says God is love. You read through the Scripture, love, 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 love. Jesus said, love your enemies. That's a hard one. How many of us put that into practice every day? I have a hard enough time loving the person that cut me off at Starbucks drive through let alone loving my enemies. You know what I'm saying? It's challenging, loving enemies. That's tough. But it's the excellent way. If you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's the love chapter, right? But have you ever considered that the numbers and the chapters are not in the original text? Now, usually they do a pretty good job. They're there just to help you find stuff. But when the original authors were were writing out by inspiration of Holy Spirit and creating the scripture, there was no chapters and verses. Does everybody understand that, right? So, so this is one of those places where I think a chapter and verse got put in the wrong spot. So if you read verse, uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, often referred to as the love chapter, it's important to back up one verse. One verse to chapter 12, last verse of chapter 12. And what does Paul say at the last words of chapter 12? And he goes, and now let me show you a more excellent way. And then he begins to talk about love. What is the first excellent attitude that we are to have? It's the attitude of love. 
And then he goes on, he says, let me show you the more ex- most excellent way. And then he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that I can move mountains, but I have no, no love, I've got nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It's not bo- does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. How many marriage counseling sessions could I avoid if couples kept no record of wrongs? A lot of them. A lot of them. You know, just when the day's over, write down everything that he or she did, then throw the page out. Burn it. You know what I'm saying? Keep no record. No record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This is one of the most potent passages of Scripture, and thank God that the original didn't cut off the end of chapter 12, because in context, Paul says, let me show you the most excellent way. Let me show you the, where the excellent spirit rests. It rests. Excellence rests in love. Excellence is built on love. Paul tells us to eagerly seek the greater gifts, but then he says, now I'll show you the most excellent way. So in other words, gifts are great. Spiritual gifts are great. You know, tongues, prophecy, healing, all great. But Paul says, but the excellent foundation that's got to be underneath all of it is love. And then he's so strong in his words after that that you could, you could prophesy, you could you know, give your body to be burned, you could give all your wealth away. It wouldn't matter if you didn't do it out of, and you weren't motivated by love, it means nothing. It means nothing. Love has to be the foundation of those actions and those activities. The love chapter, as it's so aptly called, is the foundation then of excellence and attitude. It's the foundation of excellence in anything that we do. And, and you, as a church body, as a church family, we can't be a family of excellence if we have not love. If you're there and somebody in the body, church body offended you last week, last year, last decade, and you're still carrying it, you cannot walk in excellence until you deal with that thing. You've got to lay it down. Even if the person that offended you was me. Don't know how I did that, but if I did, I'm sorry, but for your own health and well-being, lay it down. Love me. <laughs> Love me. It's that simple. That's what Jesus is telling you to do. And guess what? He's telling me to love you too. So that the shoe, as they say, is on both feet, right? 
Jesus built his kingdom on love. And in so doing, he laid a foundation of excellence for us to follow that we build the kingdom on. I want to read you a quote from an unlikely person. This is from Napoleon Bonaparte. And I want you to hear what he had to say about Jesus and his kingdom of love. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions would die for him. Even Napoleon Bonaparte understood the superior foundation of the love of the kingdom of God. And, you know, we get so caught up in all of the, you know, the arguments going on. This has been the most divisive time in political, uh, cultural history that I can think of. Uh, You know, liberal, conservative, NDP, independent, you know, Democrat, Republican, uh, you know, anti-virus, anti-vax, anti-this, anti-that, you know, uh, frankly, it doesn't matter to me what your attitude is about it. The politics of it don't matter. I love you. I choose to love you. And I choose for love to be greater than my politics. Do I have political ideologies? Sure I do. Write about them frequently. Send things into different people. Um, But the reality is, if I have those ideologies, if my political ideology means that I can't sit down with somebody with a different political ideology and love them, then my political ideology is greater than my Christianity. Did you hear me this morning? And we cannot allow politics to supersede our Christianity. We cannot allow ourselves to be divided from other people because we disagree with their position or their stance on COVID-19. I know some of you are thinking, I can't believe he's talking about this, but it needs to be said because I see it happening in the body all the time. And I see people being judgmental and critical on both extremes of the spectrum. And when people say to me, I have people disappointed in me because I don't do something on one extreme and disappointed in me because I don't do something on the other. And they say, why don't you do it? And I say, because I'm, I'm not here to pick political ideologies or, or to, you know, take sides. I'm here to love people as Jesus loved people. Right? You know, in, in, past, in past plagues, you know what the church did? The church rolled up their sleeve dove in there, and served the sick. Didn't have vaccines, didn't have proper health care systems, didn't have any of those things in place. So those debates weren't even available to them. They just rolled up their sleeves and served those who were sick. And as I said, right from day one in this whole thing, they reasoned one of three things. Number one, I'm the child of the Lord. The Lord will protect me from this virus. Number two, if I don't, if the Lord chooses not to protect me and I get the virus, the Lord can heal me from the virus. Amen? And number three is if number one or number two doesn't happen, then number three, I'm in the presence of the Lord. All three good options for the believer. Amen? 
Are you hearing me this morning? We served. Now, we're blessed with the healthcare system and all kinds of things going on, and we have lots of opportunity to still serve, to serve everybody in the midst of it. I had no intention of talking about this this morning, but I think it's really important for people to hear it. And our attitude should be the same as the Lord Jesus Christ, where I am going to love somebody. I don't care what their ideology is or whether I do. It's not, I don't have to convince them that I'm right and they're wrong. And that's, it's big for me to say that because I love to argue and I used to just, <laughs> the number one important thing to me was to win an argument for years. But I won all kinds of arguments and lost all kinds of friends. And now I take the position that it's okay if you're wrong. <laughs> Took a while for that penny to drop for people, you know. The reality is, is that my love for you supersedes your ideology, my ideology, and in the end, only the Lord Jesus Christ knows who's really right. Have you ever read A Tale of Three Kings? How many read that book? Do you remember how Gene Edwards, the author in there, he keeps talking about how you think you might know who the Lord's anointed is? Yeah right? And, uh, and he's comparing, just so you know, he's comparing uh, King Saul with King David with King Absalom. There's the three kings, right? And he looks at the historicity of the three men and how they perceive the relationship with God. And, and he says, and you know, you may look at your own pastor and be convinced that he is a pastor with the spirit of Absalom or the spirit of Saul, and he's not a David. And he says, you may be convinced that you know and he goes, but guess what? Only God knows and he never tells. And so we're called to live and to serve as blood-washed saints of God whose foundation of excellence is love, regardless of what we think about the ideology or the position of the person we're called to serve. And if you don't have a grace to do that because somebody's ideology is just right out there, like, you know, maybe conspiracy theory, sleeping with a tin hat on, or like I said a few weeks ago, so nervous about the virus that they, they shower with a mask on. It doesn't matter. Then you're just going to have to say, okay, God, I need a greater level of grace, but don't fall into the pit of judging that person and condemning that person. Are you hearing me this morning? And somebody say amen. amen. That's not the pit for us. We're here to serve and to love. Because the foundation of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of excellence, is the foundation of love. Of love. Well, let me move on. The second thing I think that we have to look at when it comes to our attitude being the same as Christ is one that's clearly outlined in the passage of Philippians chapter 2, and that is the, the attitude of humility. The attitude of humility. Your attitude, it says, should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in human appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The attitude of Christ is one of love. The attitude of Christ is one of humility. Jesus was humility personified. Paul longed to do, uh, to, I should say, Paul, whether Paul intended to, I should say, or not, he gives us and theologians one of the greatest statements about the nature of Christ in this passage. When he said, uh, when he said that he thought it 
not robbery in the King James to be equal with God. Or in here in the NIV, uh, you know, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. What does that verse mean? It means that Jesus was, was already divine. So it, 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 he didn't think it was robbery to be considered equal with God because it's not theft to take an identity that's already yours. Are you hearing me? That's why Jesus thought it not robbery to be considered equal with God, because he was God. So it's not robbery. You can't be accused of robbery uh, if it means you're, you're taking your own identity. And that's why in the NIV it words it and it says, it thought it not, you know, to, it's, how did it work? It says between him and yeah, uh, to be grasped, not something for him to grasp. Jesus didn't have to reach out to try and take hold of his divinity because he was divine. He was divine. And I think it's very important for us to understand the, the Christological nature of this, of this verse. We have to understand the Christology of it, the study of Christ, the nature of Christ. We have to understand what is stamping on Jesus in terms of his divinity to understand the humility. You see, the humility of Christ means something because of who he was. The humility means something because of the nature of the man who is expressing it. Because Jesus was the God-man, because he was perfect God and perfect man wrapped in one, for him to take the step as the divine and enter humanity was a humbling step. For you and I to be born as a human being is not that humbling. I know some of us think we're pretty good and can't believe we're contained in this temple of flesh, but... You know, for Jesus, it really was a humbling step to actually be found in nature to be a human being walking on the earth. You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing, and this is a a profound truth that God showed me. You can't be humble if you don't know who you are. Jesus was making an effort or a statement of humility by becoming a human being because he knew he was divine. He knew who he was. So it was a humble expression, an expression of humility to be found as a human being. Right? And, and what, I, what I would like to submit to you is that for you and I, we can't walk in humility unless we know who we are as children of God. Unless we know who we are, we really will never walk in true humility. Because to be humble means to be free from pride or vanity. And